0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you've been with us in our study of 2 Samuel, you know we come to the point now where uh, David's kingdom uh, has been threatened by rebellion. Uh, His son Absalom has rebelled against him. He sought to take the throne of his father, but now... Uh, Absalom and his rebellion are dead and David is returning to the throne in Jerusalem and yet uh, now he will face yet another rebellion. uh, This one from a worthless man named Sheba. And so we're going to read through chapter 20 and and consider what we might learn from this text and what God might have to teach us today. And so out of reverence for God's word, I'm going to invite you once again, if you're able to stand as I read Our passage for today. This is what the Holy Word of God says. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel." So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines, who he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be there yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And, the, and David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servant and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened to his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand stand by Amasa and said, "'Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab.' And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway." And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmachah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the ramparts. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, "'Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. "'That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim "'called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. "'Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city.' "'And the woman said to Joab, "'Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall.' "'Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom.' And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem, to the king. Now Joab was in command of the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiad, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adarim was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Eliad was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. If you would pray with me. Father, as we come to an ancient word about war and battle, about murder and beheadings, about... Uh, just gruesome things. Lord, help us to see how this relates to us today. Help us to see how 2 Samuel 20 teaches us about the gospel of Jesus. Help us to make those connections now, we ask, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been walking through First and Second Samuel with us over the recent months and recent weeks. Uh, this morning might feel like a, a scene from the movie Groundhog Day. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, you know that, that every morning Bill Murray's character wakes up and he experiences the same day over and over again. And we're kind of at that point in Second Samuel where I get up each Sunday and it seems like I read the same thing over and over again. Uh, someone else dies... Someone else's murder. Something else gruesome happens. There's another rebellion against David. It's like a broken record that seems to repeat itself over and over and over again. It's like the old saying goes. Same song, different verse. And so you might be wondering as we come to this text today, when do we get to that passage that says, and they lived happily ever after? <laughs> you know, when do we get to the point where, where everything's back together and everything's good and everything's Right? Well, we don't get there today because David's story is not a fairy tale. David's story is closer to an old nursery rhyme that most of us learned when we were young. Remember Humpty Dumpty sat on a, Humpty Dumpty had a great, but all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. That that's closer to what we've been reading. David, if you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, the scripture tells us in verse 15 that, that he reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. If you go back to Second Samuel chapter 8, really what we find is that the pinnacle of David's reign. That, that seems like the happily ever after there. But things didn't stay that way. Because David had a great fall. Except his didn't happen from sitting on a wall. His happened when he went up onto a rooftop. And it's from that rooftop that you might remember that he looked down and he saw Bathsheba in her beauty. And he saw her bathing. And we saw him fall. He pursued his lust and his desire. That led him to adultery. That led him to murder. And with those decisions and with that sin, David had a great fall. And ever since that point in Second Samuel chapter 11 where David had that great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men haven't been able to put David's kingdom back together again. And we'll see in today's text how that continues. How the effects of David's sin, the consequences of his sin, still are infecting the kingdom, still are bringing division in the kingdom. And David, for all his efforts, he can't fix this. And so let's begin our study by looking at the first point there in your outline as we walk through this text together. Point one tells us we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We're reminded of this... And of the brokenness of our world as we consider what takes place in this chapter. Even as we consider just the first few verses. The the first thing that reminds us of brokenness is the introduction here of Sheba. We're told Sheba was a worthless man. Now you think about that for a second. That that word worthless. It's It's a term we might use to describe someone who's good for nothing. You know, someone who maybe tries to help us out but they're really not much help and Well, how did so-and-so do? Well, you know, they they were just kind of worthless. It might be the way we refer to someone we don't think much of. Well, they're just, you know, they're just kind of worthless. But the, the Hebrew term here has a much harsher, harsher meaning. Because this word worthless is associated with wickedness. It's associated with death. It's associated with rebellion. It's a word we've seen in our study of 1 and 2 Samuel already. You can look back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. You might remember when we learned there about Eli's sons and their wickedness and what they did. They're described as worthless men. And then you can look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. where we read about how Saul, when he's inaugurated as the king, and when Saul's actually doing what he's supposed to be doing, there's still men who rebel against him. They're referred to as worthless fellows. You may remember what happened with Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, this man who did not return or show kindness to David. He's referred to as a worthless man. In fact, his own wife calls him a worthless fellow. And more recently in our study, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, you might remember Shimei was cursing David and throwing stones at David. And in his curse he said, You man of blood, you worthless man. This term worthless is associated with far more than good for nothing. It is wickedness. It is rebellion. And it describes very well Sheba because he is a rebel against David. He is a rebel against the Lord's anointed. And so we read about his rebellion here, and it's important that we remember in his rebellion against David, he's not just rebelling against David. He's rebelling against the Lord's anointed. He's rebelling against God's will. God had made clear in his covenant with David that David was to reign, that a descendant of David one day would reign over the throne forever. And yet we see here Sheba in his selfish rebellion even the way he refers to David, not as the Lord's anointed. He's just the son of Jesse. (laughs) We we don't have any portion. We don't have any part with him. He's not going to do anything for us is what he's saying here. So every man to his tents, meaning you you fight for yourself and for your things. You rise up with me. And so we see a picture here in Sheba that that really we see today. We we see a, a man who's rebelling against the Lord's anointed, rebelling against God's will. He's not content just to rebel himself. He invites others to rebel with him. And that's a picture we see in the world today, isn't it? People aren't just content to to rebel against God and rebel against God's design and rebel against God's word and rebel against the Lord's anointed against Jesus Christ. They, They want to invite others into their rebellion. Now, that's what we see Sheba doing. And That's what others do. Verse 2 tells us, So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And so with this, we we see this this division, this brokenness in the kingdom. But not just there. It continues in verse 3. Now, verse 3 is one of those verses that it's easy for us just to kind of skip over. It seems like it's just a small commentary, but I, I think it's intentionally placed at this point for a reason. It's to remind us of just how broken David's kingdom was. So David returns home and there's this note here about these ten concubines that David had left behind to take care of his house. Now, if you've been walking with us in this study, you know what happened to these concubines. You know what Absalom had done with his father's concubines. He had sought to bring shame to David through what he did. But really, David should have been ashamed for having concubines in the first place. That they're a reminder to us of David's sin. That they're a reminder to us that God's word clearly teaches from the beginning that there's a covenant that's supposed to take place between one man and one woman. And within that covenant of marriage, there is intimacy. And anything outside of that is sin. And David has gone outside of that covenant plan. He has taken on not only multiple wives. He's taken on concubines as well. This was a sinful covenant action of David's. And we see the consequences of his sin are great. And it's not just him who bears the consequence of his sin. Here we see these ten women bear the consequence of his sin. Because essentially now that they will live as widows till their dying day. It's not a pleasant picture that's painted here. It's certainly no fairy tale. There's no happily ever after for these ladies. No, they live protected, provided for, but as widows Because of David's sin. They bear the shame of his sin. And they are a reminder of his sin. And they are a reminder of just the brokenness that surrounds David and the world that he's in. The rebellion of Sheba. The state of these concubines. they're, They're reminders of just how broken things were in David's world. And they remind us that our world is broken as well. That this brokenness is not just isolated to 2 Samuel 20. We see this brokenness all the way back in creation. When Adam and Eve rebel against God. When they, they choose themselves and their, their sin over God's will. And they disobey God. And we see from that point forward to our lives today. Rebellion, disobedience, and wickedness. We see it in... 2 Samuel 20, we see it when we look in the mirror. Romans chapter 3 tells us this. Paul quotes from the Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this morning you might be here, maybe you're guest, and you say, well... Pastor, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You're not. <laughs> You're not. I, I'm not. Now, now on our best day, at our best efforts, yeah, may, maybe we look better externally to that, than someone we might compare ourselves to the the police blotter that pops up on Facebook every day. We might might feel better. There's not a warrant out for us today. You, you might find yourself at times looking at other people and looking at their situation. Well, at least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not like that person. I just realize someone's looking at you saying the same thing. Well, at least they're not as bad as you are. See, when we compare ourselves to each other, it's, it's a slippery scale. And that's why God makes the scale very clear in his word. He says, there's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's righteousness is the standard and none of us meets it. And certainly, David did not meet it. It's a reminder of our brokenness, of his brokenness. It's a reminder to us that we've all sinned. We've all taken a great fall. We are all broken people. And no matter what we do in and of ourselves, we can't put the pieces back together again. We we can't fix ourselves. That's why every time you go into the bookstore, you'll find a a new self-help book. Well, if the self-help book really worked, then why do you need to know? So you find a new seminar, a new series, a new do this, do this thing better. Here's a new plan for you. And if you just do this, well, you'll make everything better again. And the problem is you and I can't make everything better again. We can't make it righteous. We can't make it perfect. We can't make it sinless. I mean, if you and I had the power, the ability to just stop sinning, then we would, wouldn't we? But in and of ourselves, we don't have that power. We are broken people. and We can't fix ourselves. Not completely. That leads us to the second point there. We, we cannot fix our broken world. Point two, we cannot fix our broken world. So David's kingdom here is clearly broken. But he's going to attempt to fix it. He's going to fail, but, but he's going to try. And so this rebellion has raised up. And, and you'll notice as you read through this chapter David's not seeking after God. There, there's no going to God in prayer. There's no seeking, Lord, lead me in this path. There's just rash decision after rash decision. David's first decision is he's going to send Amasa to squash the rebellion. Now you may remember, Amasa had been the commander of Absalom's army. He was put in charge then of David's army when he demoted Joab... Um, also was David's relative. He was his nephew. He was Joab's cousin. And so David tells him, I'm going to give you a timeline. You've got three days. Now I want you to go out and gather an army, and I want you to take care of this rebellion. But the problem is, three days go by, and it seems like he doesn't show back up. And something's gone wrong. Something hasn't worked out here. He hasn't followed orders completely. And so David, it seems, doesn't even really inquire about that. He, he just turns to another and so now he turns to Abishai in verse 6. He tells him to go squash the rebellion. Now you notice here he doesn't turn to Joab. <laughs> Joab, who had been the commander of his army, Joab, who was very good at squelching rebellions and taking care of problems. But Joab didn't listen to David, did he? And David would tell him one thing to do, he'd do another. And Joab always seems to have the the kingdom in mind. He's not necessarily rebelling against the kingdom, but but he doesn't do things the way David tells him to do things. And most recently, David had told him to take care of Absalom's rebellion, but to protect Absalom, not to kill Absalom. And what did Joab do? He, He killed Absalom, David's son. And this really drives a wedge between he and David. And so David doesn't turn to Joab. He turns to Joab's brother Abishai. He tells him, Now you gather my servants and, and you go and pursue Sheba. And Abishai follows orders. But notice you read there that, that Joab follows close behind. <laughs> now he doesn't want to sit on the sidelines on this one. He, he wants to be involved in this pursuit. He wants to be back in charge. And so as the story unfolds, Amasa comes from wherever he had been, this deadline he'd missed, he catches back up to the army, and then there's this encounter that Joab has with Amasa. And these, these men are cousins. They're, they're family. It would have been customary in this day and time for them to approach one another, to greet one another, to kiss one another. And so Joab, as he approaches Amasa, Amasa assumes that's what's happening, but Joab has other motives. Joab wants to be in charge. Joab wants his job back, and he wants it so badly, he strikes down his cousin and he kills him. And notice how he does it. He, he leans in to give him a, a kiss of affection on his cheek, and he strikes him dead. This won't be the last time we see one, someone betrayed with a kiss. <laughs> You fast forward to Luke's gospel, chapter 22. Judas approaches Jesus in the garden. He leans in to greet him affectionately with a kiss. And what does Jesus say to him? Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Second, Samuel 20. Same song, different verse. Joab leans in and he kills Amasa. He betrays him. And now he takes over this pursuit of Sheba. He wanted... To pursue Sheba. He wanted to lead the army. But not on David's terms. On his own. So he takes out Amasa. And then in this peculiar scene. He he leaves his body laying there bleeding. He puts one of his men beside the body. To give directions to those who will come behind him. As if to say. You better follow Joab. (laughs) You know look what happened to this guy. You're loyal to David right. Well then you're loyal to Joab. If you're fighting David's battle, you're fighting Joab's battle. Well, that's not really true here. Again, the end goal was the same. They wanted to take care of this rebellion. But again, Joab wanted these things done on his terms. He wanted them done his way. And Joab's way throughout the scripture was always the way of violence. You can see this throughout his life. He had executed Abner when David wanted to make peace with him. He had killed Absalom when David wanted his son spared. And now Joab takes control of this pursuit of Sheba by killing Amasa. It's a reminder to us that David couldn't fix his kingdom. He couldn't fix himself. He couldn't even fix those who were responsible to do the things he called them to do. There's just chaos here. And David can't fix it. Well, the story unfolds and... Joab pursued Sheba to a town called Abel. And being the man of violence he is, they they besiege the city. They're not even seeking to negotiate. They're they're ramming down the walls of the city. And then this wise woman comes out and says, "Just, just stop for a moment. Stop your bloodthirsty pursuit for just a minute. What do you want? And in her wisdom, she negotiates with Joab. She makes him an offer that she will hand over to him Sheba if he will stop his siege of the city. Joab accepts and not long after that overcomes Sheba's head. And it seems, it seems that the battle's over. The scripture tells us that Joab returns to Jerusalem, that all the men go back to their homes. But we are reminded as we walk through this passage and those that follow that things are not well. Things are not put back together again. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put this kingdom back together again. The people are not at peace. The kingdom is not at rest. It reminds us that David could not fix the brokenness of his kingdom. It reminds us that we can't fix the brokenness of our world. mean, friends, just look around today look at how broken things are. Look at how broken people are. Look in the mirror at your own brokenness. And look at all the attempts, all the ways, all the things we do to try to fix this brokenness. And in the end, we fail. We cannot ultimately fix ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is God can. And God Does. Which brings us to that third and final point, point three. The hope for our broken world rests in the promises of God. The hope for our broken world rests in the promises of God. Now look at these last few verses we have in chapter 20, 23 through 26. It it, kind of reads like the closing credits to a movie, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, a name and a job, a name and a job. Now I don't know about you, but apart from Marvel movies that don't stick around during the credits. And even then when I do, I'm, I'm waiting for something else. We don't tend to watch those and really think about those. Oh, that was the gaffer. And that was the best boy. and It just kind of runs right past us. And, and it's kind of that way in Scripture too. We get to the close of some of these chapters and this person did this and this person did this and this person did this. It just kind of runs right past us. But consider for a moment what we read here. And if you consider for a moment what you read here, you find that, We've seen this list or one almost identical to it before. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, following that verse that I read earlier, verse 15, that talks about how David was reigning over all Israel and there was peace and equity among all the people and all things were good and all things were right. We see a list very similar to this one. That within that context, within that kingdom, when all was well, the closest to happily ever after, as we see with David, Then we read about Joab. And then we read about Benaiah. And then we read about these very same people. But there are some subtle differences. I would encourage you to take these two texts, the end of chapter 8, the end of chapter 20, and just compare them side by side. I did that this week. And here's a few subtle differences I noticed. One, there's no 8.15 in 2 Samuel 20. There's no mention here. Of how David is reigning with equity. And how David's reigning over all of Israel. It's a reminder to us that David's reign has been threatened. And David's reign now is in chaos. He he is struggling. And so the words of 2 Samuel 8, 15, they, they don't apply now to David. It's a sad picture. Second, we see Joab mentioned in both... Passages in relation to the army, but there's a major difference when you get to the end of 20. Joab is not leading in a way where he is following and honoring David any longer. He's doing what he thinks needs to be done. He's going against the clear spoken will of David. He's leading the army, but he's not listening to his king. It's another reminder of the chaos in David's kingdom. And third, now there's someone named Adarim who's in charge of forced labor. That doesn't appear at the end of chapter 8. There's no forced labor at the end of chapter 8. But now by the time we get to the end of chapter 20, now there's forced labor. People have been enslaved in David's kingdom to do what he wills them to do. And maybe he had them working on building projects. Maybe he enslaved them into the army. We don't know the context, but we know they were forced into slavery. Which we read about earlier in that text in 1 Kings. Ultimately that slavery leads to rebellion. And it leads to division. And again it's a reminder to us of just how broken David's kingdom was. It reminds us friends. If you haven't seen it already. that The hope for Israel wasn't in David. And the hope for us today. It's not in the kings of this earth. That the hope for us today is not in who gets elected, who was elected, who will be elected. The hope for us today isn't in men who rule over us in other places. The hope for us today is in the God who made a covenant with David. And ultimately, that's where David's hope was. Because for all the chaos in his kingdom, for all the brokenness, for all the failure he had in seeking to fix his own kingdom, David still had hope. And you read about his hope over and over again in the Psalms. And it's a hope that rests in the promises of God. And so where is our hope today? When we look around at brokenness all around us, when we look in the mirror and see brokenness in our own lives, where is our hope today? And friends, our hope is in the same place. Our hope is found there in God and in His promises. The God who made a covenant with David is the God who's made a covenant with us. And that covenant rests in His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, fully man and fully God, who did what all others have failed to do, who perfectly obeyed God, who did not rebel against the will of the Father to the point that He went to the cross, died in your place and in mine that we might have life. We, we can't fix our broken sin problem, but Jesus on the cross dealt with it. And he calls us to trust in him, to repent and turn from our sin, and to trust in the promises he has made. God promised David that his descendant would be able to pick up all the broken pieces that came from David's fall and Adam's fall and our fall, and that's exactly what Jesus has done. And so our call today is then to trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who puts the kingdom back together. Jesus is the one who offers us a perfect and everlasting kingdom. We read in Revelation chapter 11 that the gospel of our Lord Jesus announces the day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12 that in Christ we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we can have hope today. In a world that is unstable, in a world that is broken, we can have hope. For our trust is in Jesus and in the kingdom that is coming. And we are to remind each other this day, this Lord's Day, of that hope. We started our service this morning looking through prayer requests this last few weeks it seems every day every day I receive news emails phone calls of someone else who is sick who is suffering in great ways I'm reminded as you are that there is brokenness all around us but friends God has still given us hope in the midst of this brokenness he's called us to remind each other this hope today And that's what we do each and every Lord's Day. We remind one another of the hope we have in Christ and of the kingdom that is to come. And if your hope today does not firmly rest in Jesus, then I invite you during this time of invitation to trust in him, to turn to him, and to hope in him. I invite you now, if you would, to stand as I pray for us and as we respond to God's word together. Father, we are reminded today of those words we've sang many times, that our, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And yet, so often, we, we trust in different things. We, we turn to different things. We hope in different things. We, we turn to a job and finances thinking, well, that, that'll fix us. If I just get the right job, if I just made the right income, that, that'll make everything better. When we turn to people and relationships, we think, well, well, if I'm in a relationship with that person, if, if this person loves me, if I love them, well, that, that, that'll that fix it. And when we put our hope in so many things, but ultimately, Lord, those, those things don't fulfill our hope. Those things, those people, they, they let us down. And yet, Lord, you, you make an offer to us today, a guarantee that if we will put our hope in Jesus, we will not be let down that if we will repent of our sins and truly trust in Christ and look towards that day that is to come, then we can have a sure and steady hope. So I pray that's where our hope would be. I pray for each of us today, Lord, that we would consider where we are today in our relationship with you. And if we've yet to trust and turn and repent, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And if we find ourselves today seeking to do things our own way, Lord, help us to turn and trust in your way. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us now as we respond to your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to lift our voices together now, church, and sing. His mercy is more in response to the word of God. And we invite you now to respond by singing together about the mercy of God. And if the Lord is leading you in your response today to to come forward and make a, a public proclamation of your faith, that you're trusting in the gospel, trusting in Jesus, we invite you to do that. If you need someone to to counsel with you, to to pray with you, we, we invite you to come. I'd be glad to do that. Others would love to do that as well. If God's leading you to take the next step in obedience of baptism, of joining this church family, if you just need prayer, wherever it might be, we invite you to respond and to come now as we all respond together and sing, His mercy is more.